Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom. His fall would tear it apart. There's a scene in the Robert Redford movie, The Candidate, where his character has just won his election to the U.S. Senate. As his campaign staff celebrates and reporters shout questions at him, Redford grabs his political advisor and, and they duck into an empty room. And the newly elected United States Senator sits on an unmade hotel bed. And he says softly, what do we do now? What do you do when you arrive? When all of your efforts start succeeding? When the dreams that never seem possible are suddenly within reach? When the promotion goes through, when the raise gets approved, when that corner office has your name on it and that chair at the boardroom table finally seems possible. What do you do when the promises of God that for so long seemed so far away are right in front of you? What do you do then? For the last several weeks, we've been studying the early years of the life of David. We were with the prophet Samuel as he found the next king of Israel in the fields tending his sheep. We were with the Israelite army as they strained to hear what the skinny kid with the sling and the rocks was yelling at the enormous Philistine warrior. And we watched as he entered the service of the king, as he calmed Saul's troubled mind with music, as he fought for him on the battlefield, and as he ran from him when Saul's jealousy and paranoia got the better of him. But now the wilderness years are over. Saul is dead and his anger has died with him. But God's people need a king. But not, not just any king. They need a new kind of king. No more pettiness or, or personal vendettas. No more raving paranoia. They are tired of seeing the armies of God flee. They are begging God for a new kind of king. A king who will protect the people with a strong arm and, and rule with wisdom. They need the king God chooses. They need a man after God's own heart. And now everyone is watching as the crown is placed on David's head. Everyone is waiting to see what happens next. Since the death of Saul, the people have been asking one another, what do we do now? They have been asking God, what do we do now? And as David takes his throne, you can almost hear God whisper, watch. So for the next seven years, David is a busy man. He unites the kingdom, he defeats his enemies, and Israel finally has the right man as king. So what does David do as king? Well, in any position of leadership, the, one of the main things that you do is make decisions. The decisions that a king makes affects tens of thousands of innocent people. 
And what we're going to see today is that even for a man after God's own heart, making good decisions doesn't always come easy. I want to welcome you guys. I want to thank you all for being here at Seacoast this weekend. My name is Josh Surratt, and I am campus pastor here at the Long Point campus and one of the teaching pastors as well. And it's always a privilege for me to have the chance to be with you all. I want to welcome those of you that are joining us at one of our offsite locations. I want to shout out to Irmo Campus uh, this weekend, uh, Pastor Jeff Kinney and his wife Melanie. I love these guys. In fact, I was thinking about Jeff um, as we were studying the life of David. And I'll stop short of comparing you to David, Jeff, because you're just not tough enough, frankly. Um, <laughs> But in terms of a man that I look to for wisdom and just watching the way that you lead, um, I've, I've just learned so much under you. So love you guys. Let's give it up for the Irmo campus. Would you guys help me with that, Long Point? So I heard a story uh, this week, and I want to share it with you guys. I heard a story of a man who bought a horse from a preacher. The preacher told the man that it was a great horse, but it had just a couple of quirks. See, the most important thing he had to know about this horse is that it wouldn't go unless you said, praise the Lord, and it won't stop unless you say, amen. You know, kind of strange deal. But the owner says, okay, that's clear enough. It shouldn't be a problem. I can can deal with that. And so he paid the money. He got on the horse, and he says, praise the Lord, and off they went. And things were going great. The horse galloped through the countryside. Everything is going awesome until the horse starts heading towards a cliff. And the owner kind of freezes up, has a brain freeze. He can't remember what he's supposed to say to get the horse to stop. And so finally, at the very last minute, he kind of gets right to the edge of the cliff and he remembers and he shouts out, amen, and the horse stops right at the edge of this cliff. And so he kind of sits back in the horse and he wipes his brow and he looks towards heaven and he says, praise the Lord. (laughs) So I know it's cheesy, but... We all make our fair mistakes, sometimes we have to learn things the hard way. And today we're going to witness one of David's big mistakes, a lesson that he had to learn the hard way. Has anyone in the house ever made a decision that at the time that you made the decision, you were convinced it was the right move? I mean, you were convinced it was a good thing to do, and then over time, maybe you realized that it turned out that people were getting hurt in the process and it it turned out to to just not turn out the way that you thought it was going to. Have you ever done that? Some of you guys have been there. I know I've done it many times. I've been married 10 years. And so um, many times in my marriage, I've I've made those kinds of mistakes. And even in ministry, uh, leading in ministry, there are so many decisions that I wish that I could go back and and, and redo because I thought they were the right move at the time, but then it turned out that you know, I, I didn't see the whole picture. And you guys have done that. You know, there are some, I know friends of mine that I, I know that and probably some of you that are here, maybe you've moved your family. Uh, you took a job promotion that seemed like the right thing to do. It, it was a better pay. You were going to be able to provide a, a better home for your family. And uh, and, and doing so, the, the years that followed, you kind of realized that it was paying a, a you were paying a major toll on your kids and it just wasn't working out the way that you thought it was. Maybe the job didn't give you exactly what you thought it was going to give you, whatever that might be. I know there are some of us that have dated somebody and uh, you were convinced that this was the right person for you. Uh, your parents weren't, your friends weren't, nobody else was, but you just saw it through through these these lenses. You knew it was the right person and so you did it and then it just didn't turn out well. I know all of us have made decisions that, that just didn't turn out well. And the problem is, is that our lives are basically a byproduct of the decisions that we make. I mean, right? I mean, the, the lives that we live are, are the the product of our decisions, whether they're big decisions, bad decisions. And so the question for the day is how do we make good decisions? I mean, how, how do we make wise decisions in our lives? And we're in a series, you know, we've been studying the life of David and he's now the king of Israel. 
he took over as, as the king of Judah right after uh, Saul died. And then seven years later, he became, becomes the king of Israel. And so that's where we pick up the story right now. And he makes one of the first major decisions of his reign. And in some ways, he gets it right. And in some ways, he gets it really, really wrong. But we're going to look at the story together and just kind of do a Bible study. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, this is a crazy chapter in the Bible. We're going to kind of read it together. And I'm just going to make a couple of observations on what I see. So if you can get there, if you have your iPhones or iPads, do that. We're going to uh, dive in. I just want to read you the story first. It reads really easily because there's a lot of action happening in it. And uh, then we'll see what we can learn from it. It says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart. I want you to make a mental note of the new cart. They, they set it on a cart. That's important in the story. We'll come back and, and show you why in a couple of minutes. And they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart and with the Ark of God on it. Ahio was walking out in front of it. So what's happened is they went to get the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is basically a really important piece of um, furniture that they made back in the days of Moses that, uh, to, to make a long story short, basically represented the presence of God uh, in, in Israel. And, and so they had lost the Ark of the Covenant about 100 years prior to this happening. Uh, and so uh, they, they were in a battle. It's kind of a funny story. They're in a battle with the Philistines and they're getting their butts handed to them, basically. They're getting defeated badly. And so someone has the great idea of, hey, why don't we grab the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out here on the battlefield? Kind of try to use the presence of God as a good luck charm. And God decided to stay home. And so the Philistines are like, oh, cool, we'll take that. And so they just stole it from them uh, as they beat them. And they took it home with them. And uh, what they found out, the Philistines, is that this was kind of a problem because the Ark of the Covenant uh, was a powerful uh, piece of furniture. Got, the presence of God was in it. And so weird things started happening. People were dying. People were mishandling it. And, and so they were like, eventually, we don't want this thing. And so they ended up stashing it in this place, this guy, Abinadab's house. And so David, first decision that he makes as a king, let's go get that. And so that's, that's kind of what's happening here. And so they set it on this cart, they're taking it, and it says that David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. So they decided to do church. You know, they're excited. 30,000 people show up for this big day for Israel. And so they're singing, they're dancing. It's an incredible time together. And then things go bad. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who's one of the young guys who was guiding the cart, reached out and took hold of the Ark of God. Because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And the church service ended, as you can imagine. And it says, David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. Don't we often get angry at God when something bad goes wrong, something, something goes wrong in our lives? And David does. And so David was afraid of the Lord that day, and, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in this house uh, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Basically, they, they move it to this guy's house, and I mean, he starts, you know, he's hitting the lottery, he's, things are going well, his kids are doing well. God's blessing, uh, which is represented in the ark of the covenant, is in this guy's house. And so... 
It says David was told in verse 12, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything that he has because of the ark of God. And so David went to bring up the ark of God from the house. Finally, he decides to bring it back to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 13, this is important. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, notice they're carrying the ark now. They're, they're doing something a little bit differently. Uh, they had it on a cart earlier. They had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And so that worship service picks back up, and, and they're just dancing, having a blast. They bring the ark into the city. Verse 16, it says, uh, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, who was the poorly named daughter of Saul, um, watched from a window. And this is, she's also married to David. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord in. They set it in its place and they made all these burnt offerings. They had a big production. David ends up sending uh, some, some cake and bread and, and some things home with everybody uh, to bless their households. And then in verse 20, it says, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, here's a sarcasm alert, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And then David replies and he says, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. There's a little marriage jab. You guys uh, pick that up, taking a crack at the in-laws. He chose me or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Verse 23, and Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's a crazy story. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. And, and frankly, the first response that I had in reading that is, man, am I glad I live in the New Testament. Anybody else think that way? Uh, just a lot of stuff going on there. But what I want to do is I just, let's, let's pick out a couple of observations about David and, and the way that he made this major decision. And I think that it's going to be relevant to our lives today in, in a, a powerful way. First thing that I noticed in reading that is this, just knowing the right thing to do is not enough. Just knowing the right thing to do is not enough. See, great intentions can shipwreck a marriage, can shipwreck a job. And, and David's intentions were great. Going back to verse two, he and all his men went to Bala. They, they, they came to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord Almighty. We, we talked about that, the ark of the covenant. He, he made a great decision. Uh, he, he said, we want to bring this in. Not only was it where the presence of God lived, it also was a very significant thing for their country. It would be kind of like the, the White House on wheels. They, they stored some of their major uh, monuments, moments that they had, relics. They had the Ten Commandments were in there, the Aaron's staff that guided them through the wilderness was in there. The, the manna that God brought down from heaven was in this Ark of the Covenant. So it was a very significant piece. David made a good choice. Basically what he's saying as king is, you know what? If I'm going to be king uh, of Israel, the first thing I need is the presence of God in, in our country. And, and as a side note, if you're starting a business, if you are maybe beginning a new relationship, maybe just getting married, maybe having kids, maybe starting a new job, maybe starting a new week this week. That's a pretty good prayer. I need the presence of God in my life. I need the presence of God in my marriage. I need the presence of God in my work. And David makes a great decision on that. He's, let's do this. And, and he knew it needed to be done quickly. He knew the right thing to do. But knowing the right thing to do isn't always enough. 
as we're going to find out in this story. The details matter. You know, in dating, the details matter. Did you know that finding the right person to marry is not enough in dating? See, I remember when I met Lisa, it was three days after I met her, I told all of my closest friends, I just met the girl that I'm going to marry. I knew it. And I know there are a lot of you that say that about every girl that you ever date. That was not me, all right? This was just, this was not typical for me. And so I knew that, that she was the right person. And we began to pursue a relationship. And it was just obvious that God had brought us together. And I mean, things were going well. She was, everything I touched was gold around her. She just thought the world of me and good stuff, you know. We, and we began to date. And over time, though, we started to, to kind of get, get mixed up on some of the details. We started to make some critical mistakes in our relationship. And one of them that we made is we um, began to isolate ourselves from some of our godly friends. You know, we just kind of, we fell in love and we were in this mode of, you know, you're all I need. All I need is you. As long as we're together, we're going to be good. And, And we were wrong because we needed friends to hold us accountable. We needed friends to help us grow in our relationship with Christ. And, and so then as we kind of withdrew from some of our friends, we began to find ourselves in tempting situations that we knew we didn't want to be in. We found ourselves just struggling with, with these tempting situations. And, and over time, we began to carry some guilt with us. And we withdrew from the small groups that we were leading. And we weren't as involved in the church. And all these little details in our relationship, we started to get wrong. And I'll never forget the day that it culminated for me. We were engaged at the time. And Lisa came in and, and she kind of had this look that we need to talk. And so she... Um, she said, Josh, we, re- we really got to figure this thing out uh, because the way I feel right now in this relationship is that if, if you don't start leading this relationship spiritually, if we don't get on track, if we don't start getting the details right, this isn't going to work. You know, I, I can't go into this marriage if this is what it's going to look like because we've just gotten ourselves into a place of, um, of, of struggle you know, because of mixing up some of the details. So getting the right person is good. That's the first step. But the details matter. And the same thing goes with our parenting, you know? I mean, knowing what you want for your kids is, is one thing, but then acting it out and playing it out in the details in the day-to-day is, is critical and kind of showing them a model and, and, and doing parenting. And the same thing happens in handling our money. You know, the details matter. I'm sure there are some testimonies on that one. You know, it's not enough to just know uh, what you want financially and goals financially and all that, but you've got to pay attention to the day-to-day. I remember a couple of years ago, we were just... Uh, you know, we kind of had set a budget and we were, we knew what we wanted to do financially, but at the end of every month, we would kind of look at each other and go, what, what happened this month? Where did, where did all of our money go? You know, what, what was going on? And, and so Lisa made a decision to pull out kind of our, our bank statement and start to do some addition and subtraction and all this stuff. And turns out that, um, stopping on the way home, you know, uh, picking up a quick bite to eat, say four or five times a week, uh, adds up in a month. And, you know, these frequent trips to Starbucks, she decided to add up all my Starbucks uh, trips. Bad move. She should not have done that because what we found out is that the details matter. The small stuff makes a big difference if you, you know, look at it over the period of a month or a year. And so we had to make some adjustments. What we did with the Starbucks is we, we decided to give ourselves, we, we budgeted how much we're going to spend, which was equal to about three or four drinks for us. And we just got a gift card and we would reload that on the first of every month. And when that gift card went out, the Starbucks went out. And so, um, you know, details matter in, in our finances and in all aspects of our life, even our relationship with God. The details matter. Just knowing the right thing to do spiritually, knowing that you want to grow spiritually, which I would assume that most of us that are here today have that desire to grow spiritually, to make a connection with God, to have his blessing in our lives isn't enough. Here's what Jesus says about our spiritual lives in Matthew six thirty-three. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. 
See, it's not just enough to want to grow spiritual. We've got to be willing to seek God first, to put him first in our lives. What does that mean? A couple of thoughts on that. Give him the first part of every day. The first part of every day. I don't know about you guys, but Pastor Greg, at the beginning of this year, he put out a challenge for uh, some people to the church, basically, to do the daily wisdom challenge. He said, what if we studied God's word, committed to spend time in God's word every single day, and then basically post to Twitter or Facebook or whatever your social, social media preferences, what's the one thing that God told you? Maybe one verse that stood out to you or one thing that God told you. And for me, that's been huge for me, life-changing, I would say, this year, because I've never been so in tune with what God is saying in his word. It's a huge part of the way he communicates to us. So giving him the first part of our day is a huge thing. Give him the first day of every week. And you guys, I commend you, are doing that this week, you know, by making a commitment to worship with your church family and to connect with him on the weekends in corporate worship and maybe even observing a Sabbath and uh, kind of unplugging from some of the things that you normally do during the week is, is a huge part of that. And then uh, another way of putting God first is giving them first part of our, our finances. And most of us would say, man, I would love God's blessing financially. You know, I, w- I would love to experience that in my life. Here's what he says in Malachi 3.10 about his financial blessing. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. He says, you want, you want to see the floodgates of blessing come into your life financially? And this is not a prosperity gospel. This is a biblical principle. He says, test me on this. You know, give me the, be faithful with the tithe and see if it doesn't happen. And I know our small group uh, that Lisa and I lead, we've been studying uh, a financial book here in the last couple of months and just the testimonies of people honoring God financially and then seeing what he's done and how he's been able to bless them and they've been able to bless other people. It's just been incredible. So knowing the right thing to do isn't enough and making a major decision. That's the first thing that I notice here. Let's, let's keep going and kind of get into the story a little bit more. Second thing that I saw in this, the right thing done the wrong way We'll get innocent people hurt in the process. The right thing done the wrong way will get innocent people hurt in the process. Look at verses 3 through 7. We'll kind of reread this. So they set the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And, and you guys remember the story. They, they get to the threshing floor, and Uzzah reaches out, takes hold of the ark, the, the ark and he basically is, is killed by God. This is a tough one. You know, this is a tough passage of scripture. You know, basically what the deal is, is they're taking this ark on about a 10 mile trip. You know, the Philistines had given it back uh, to to a little lesser known place in Israel. And David says, you know, we need this back in our capital. We need this back in the city of Jerusalem. And and so they've got about a 10 mile journey to go. And the deal about the Ark of the Covenant is when, when God instructed them to build it, he also gave them very specific instructions on how to transport the Ark of the Covenant. It was about a a four by three foot box and it had on each corner it had these little rings these little holes in it and what they were supposed to do is is run these poles through the the rings on each of the corners and then they had four priests had to be a priest and on each pole and they would carry the pole um, and they would walk it slowly to wherever its next destination is and that's the way that god wanted it transported why did he want it transported that way i don't know Uh, but he was pretty clear about what he wanted in that and so david being the leader that he is he goes, you know what? It's about from Long Point campus to the Dream Center is the distance that, uh, that he had to, they had to go with it in North Charleston. And so David's going, you know what? I think we could do this a better way. You know, why don't we put it on a cart? Uh, we'll get some oxen to pull it. And then you guys just kind of walk alongside of it. And so they decide, let's do that. We'll put it on a cart. And so they do it that way. He's a leader. 
he's, He's looking for efficiency here. It makes sense to me why he would make that decision. But God obviously is not... Uh, too enthused about it. Why, why was God upset about the decision that he makes? I think a couple of things. One is they replaced obedience with efficiency. They replaced obedience with efficiency. And it's easy to do that in our lives, isn't it? You know, God has spoken on something and yet there, sometimes there, there may be seemingly easier ways to do it. Uh, one example that I think about is couples that are getting, you know, on the, on the road to getting married at some point, and it, it's just more efficient and easy to move in together. I mean, frankly, it, it really is financially, convenience-wise, all of that stuff. But God's spoken otherwise, and so it's not always the wisest move. And when we, when we get into the place where we start replacing obedience with efficiency, we get into a dangerous ground. The second thing that they did is they accepted the thinking of man over the clear commands of God. You know, anytime we start thinking we have a better idea than God, we get ourselves in trouble. And so in David's decision, there's this kid, Uzzah, who is the son of a preacher, kind of guiding this thing, and he gets hurt in the process. Why did God kill Uzzah? I mean, you can't read that passage and not ask that question. And quite frankly, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why he had to die. That's one of the things that I'm writing down in my list of things I'd like to ask God when I get to heaven. I, I really don't. I mean, I think that you can look into it and there's, there's a reverence factor. There's a holiness of God uh, factor that, that Uzzah wasn't, wasn't paying attention to. But I put myself in Uzzah's shoes and I mean, this ark tumbles and it's starting to kind of sway a little bit and he reaches his hand up to, to steady it. You know, it's better than it falling on the ground. And, and, and so I don't understand all of that. But here's what I do know about Uzzah is I believe that Uzzah was collateral damage in David's bad decision. You know, David has put him in a lose-lose situation. And as leaders, when we choose to dishonor God or disobey God in our decisions, oftentimes we put the people who follow us in a tough spot. And that's what I think Uzzah was. I think he was collateral damage. He was, he was put in a lose-lose situation, and it, and it ended up obviously not working out for him. So moving the ark, the right thing, the way that they did it was directly opposed to God's clear directions in scripture. And now we have a whole family that's mourning the loss of their son as a result. And when we pursue the right things in the wrong ways, we can unintentionally hurt people in the process. You know, even in our faith, we can hurt people in the process. I have a friend who, uh, his mother was battling a serious illness uh, a couple of years ago and she was getting ready to have a, a major operation done on her and the doctor's instructor to go home Stay in your bed. You need to get some rest. You need to, it was a cancer deal. You need to uh, rest and, and get healthy. And some of their, their friends who were very good intentions, I mean, loved God, loved these, this family. And they said, you know, we're not going to let you do this alone. And we're going we're gonna to be here. And so they kind of set up a vigil where they just didn't want her to be alone. They showed up around the clock. They brought food. They prayed for her. They brought companionship. And they just, they wore her out for about two two weeks before she had the surgery. And it, it had the opposite effect of what they were hoping to, to have done because what she really needed was rest. What she really needed was for her body to have time to, to rest. And so her family watched as these people kept showing up and it was kind of this awkward, like, oh, we're thankful for your heart, but this is not helping us at all. And finally, they had to kind of draw a line. And, and this friend of mine was telling me that he, was, he struggled with just the sense of believers sometimes, you know, and it was a struggle for their family because their mom got more sick before she got better. And so the right thing, you know, the right intentions, obviously handled the wrong way, uh, can hurt people in the process. I've got a friend, um, uh, that, that we've recently got to know and their family, his father, uh, had an experience with a pastor who had great intentions, wanted to see this family come to know Christ and, but he handled it in a poor way. 
And he did it in such a way that this dad said, you know what? I will never expose my kids to this, this stuff. I'm never bringing my, my family to this. And so this friend of mine grew up, he'd never been to church in, in, a day in his life. And now they've got kids and those grandkids have never been exposed to God's word and to, to the life in Jesus Christ that many of us have because of a mistake that a, a pastor made years and years ago. Now they've been coming to Seacoast and, and really growing. It's been really cool. But, but our, our, our good intentions done the wrong way can hurt people in the process. So when your passion for something good is pursued in the wrong way, innocent people can get hurt. And what I found is that when the cause matters more than people, innocent people can get hurt. You know, there are people in this church that are excited about a lot of different things, a lot of noble causes. You can be passionate about the environment. You can be passionate about maybe uh, moral decay in our country. And I know there are many people who are, you know, and, and maybe it's an issue like abortion or maybe it's an issue like gay marriage and you, you're, you're passionate about the, the moral decline and, and you may be right and your passion. You may be right in what you're, you're passionate about, whether it's the environment, whether it's any of these issues, but if we pursue it in the wrong way, innocent people can get hurt. If we, if we elevate the cause above people, then people can get hurt. Can you say Westboro Baptist Church? Anybody? Look it up online. Um, it's, it's a poor example of a church, just as an aside note. But you know, even sharing our faith, you know, we can do it in such a way that people get hurt. So what do you do then? And what do you do if you have a passion for something good? If you want to make the right decision, you, you want to pursue a noble cause, do you just do nothing you know, for, the, for the sake of or fear of hurting somebody? Obviously not. Two questions I would ask. Is there a clear word from God on this? You know, in David's case, there was a very clear word from God, you know, down to the detail on it. And, and in some cases, there isn't. In some cases, we have to rely on, you know, the Holy Spirit and wise counsel. But, but in many of the decisions that we're trying to make, is there a clear word from God on it? You know, Matthew seven twenty four says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So hearing God's word, looking to see what he said, and then putting it into practice is a great first step in pursuing noble causes. The second question that I would ask is, how would I want to be treated? How would I want to be treated? Luke six thirty one, do to others as you would have them do to you. We all know that the golden rule. You know, the principle is that you can't bring enemies to Jesus. They have to become friends first. We have to be willing to build bridges, even in pursuing our causes. I've got a friend who uh, is in the church that just started a business recently. And I, what I love about Seacoast is just kind of the, the entrepreneurial edge of, of our people. You know, a lot of you guys have started companies. And like anybody else, this friend is praying that God will bless his business. And that's a, a great place to start. But uh, he recently sent an email out to uh, his Former, he's, he was still employed with his former company. And you know how it works when you start a business. Oftentimes, you get really good at the company that you're in, uh, and you get a vision for maybe doing this on your own. And so oftentimes, the business that you're starting may in some form or fashion be set up uh, as competition with your current place. And so this guy, I was so impressed. He sent an email out. I was on the email to all of his clients and his business. And all he did is he said, listen, my last day is coming up. Uh, this is my last day. I want to let you guys know what a ple- pleasure it's been to work with you. And then he went on to spend a, a paragraph or so talking about the company that he works for and the boss that he has and what an impact that they've had on his life and what an incredible company it was of integrity. Uh, he took some time to introduce them through email to the new person who's going to be taking on their, uh, them as clients and talked about this person's prerequisites and the, the, the gifting that they had and how they were going to do a great job taking care of it. Didn't mention in that email uh, what, what he was doing next, where he was going. And I thought, you know what? This guy is going to have a blessed business. Not because he asked for God's blessing, that's part of it, but because 
in order to be blessed by God, we've got to be willing to live our lives in such a way and pursue our business in such a way that God can bless it. And God blesses integrity. And this guy had integrity. And, and so he thought about what, what would I want to see happen to me? I imagine he fast forwarded to five years from now when this, his company's going. He probably doesn't want some rock star salesman coming in and stealing all of his clients and starting up a new business. So the simple question of how would I want to be treated in this scenario can, can help us in that. So when something bad happens, our first response is to get mad at God. And, and, and David did that, you know, and, and, and it, we talked about that earlier. It takes him three months to get his heart right, but then he repents. You know, this whole instance happens. Uzzah dies. He says, I'm not taking the presence of God here. He gets his heart right. He repents. And it leads us to our last observation in, in reading this story. And it's that the right thing done the right way will bring blessing on the house. The right thing done the right way will bring blessing on the house. The good news is just because you haven't done the right thing in the past, doesn't mean you can't do the right thing now. And so verse 12, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household and everything that he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, notice it's not on a cart anymore. They're carrying it. They're doing it the right way. And it says after six steps, they stopped and they made a sacrifice of, of a bull and um, and, and, and a fattened calf. And it says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And when he and all, in, all Israel were bringing the ark up of the Lord up uh, to, to Jerusalem with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. And so David finally wises up and he gets the presence of God back to Jerusalem the right way. And if you read the next couple of chapters of Second Samuel, you'll see that the blessing of God is on his leadership. The blessing of God is on his nation. And so that first worship service that ended poorly with the guy dying, you know, they start it back up and they're worshiping and they're dancing. And it says that David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He, he got a little undignified. And that's the decision that I want to talk about for the next couple of minutes as we close. I love that David just decided to, to go for it in his relationship with God and in his worship. You know, he, he definitely embarrassed his family a little bit. And if we were a Pentecostal church, we may would do a dancing station during our response time, but we're not going to do that. But, but I think we can learn something from David. Look at verse 16. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw the king, king David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Let me make an observation. When you get excited about God, don't expect everyone else to get excited with you. You, you know, here's why. When, when the Holy Spirit turns up the heat underneath you, it often disrupts the status quo. You know, some people are going to be inspired by what God is doing in your life. Others are going to be convicted and they're going to mask their personal conviction by finding something to criticize. I found that nine times out of 10 criticism is a defense mechanism. You know, it's us criticizing what we wish was different about ourselves. I know I struggle with that. And so if you look at Michael, she's dripping with sarcasm. Second Samuel verse 620, it says, David went home to bless his family. And, and Michael says how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today disrobing in the sight of slave girls. See, here's what impresses me about David. He, he wasn't afraid of looking foolish. He, he wasn't afraid of taking off his royal robes and dancing without hindrance and without inhibition before the Lord. If you think about the circumstances, David is brand new, the, the newly crowned king of Israel. The significance of that is this. I think there's added pressure for David to act like a king. 
You know, he's got this new job. He's got a reputation to protect. He's got a crown to represent. And kings don't disrobe and dance. That's what shepherd boys might do, but that's not what kings do. And, and no one knew that better than Michael. See, I'm a PK. Michael was a KK. She was a king's kid. You know, she grew up in the palace. She grew up observing and knowing what the protocol was. She knew how kings were supposed to act. And I'm guessing that Saul was very kingly. I'll bet he woke up in the morning with scratches on his face because he slept with the crown on his head. He, just, he was all about pomp and circumstance. That's the way he ran the kingdom. So the royal robes represent David's identity and security. And what I love about what David did is he refused to find his identity and security in his position as king. He found his identity and security in God. If you look at the Psalms, he says, the Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shield. You know, I'm not going to gain any, any of my confidence from this position, this job. My confidence is in the Lord. And he wasn't afraid of looking foolish. And I love what he says to Michael after he takes kind of the jab at her dad. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I know what God's done in my life. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he says, I will become even more undignified than this. And I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. The New Living Translation says, I'm willing to act like a fool in order, show, in order to show my joy in the Lord. Yes, and I'm willing to look even more foolish than this. There's a powerful scene in Rocky 3. Of course, every scene in Rocky is powerful, but... There's this scene in Rocky 3. You guys may remember it. I love this scene because Rocky has won some fights. He's be been crowned the champ and he's achieved some success and he's attained some financial blessing. And we find him in Rocky 3 and he's wearing this suit and, and he's talking to his manager, Mick. He says, Mick, hey, I'd like to fight again. I'd, I'd like to take, take out this, this, this guy. Will you help me in doing this? And I love what Mick says to Rocky. He says, I don't think you can do it, man. He says, Rocky, the worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. And I think David knew that the worst thing that can happen to any worshiper is that you get civilized. See, there, there's a time in our lives where the grace of God was so clear to you. It was like you couldn't believe that God would take a, a, a wretched person, a sinner like you, and, and save you and give you new life in Christ. And you're passionate about that. And, and you couldn't believe that he would even take a broken vessel like yourself and use you to do incredible things. And, and so we're on fire for God and we're worshiping with him, him with all of our might. And, and for some of us, that, that means we're just dancing. We're, we got our hands raised in worship. We're undignified before God. For some of us, that means we're willing to, to walk across the street and serve a neighbor. We're willing to sell our house and move into a communal living because we feel like maybe we can have more of an impact on, on people doing that. Or we're doing these crazy things and it's kind of standing out and people are wondering, what's up with this person? I mean, they're on fire for God. But over time, you know, the further we get from that, that initial decision, we're tempted to get civilized. You know, we're tempted to kind of settle, settle for the status quo. But the thing that I notice when I read the gospel is that the only civilized people that I really can find in there are the Pharisees. And it doesn't seem like Jesus was really impressed with them. In fact, it seems to me that Jesus handpicked a dozen disciples who were undomesticated, rough around the edges, willing to walk away from everything to follow him. I see Jesus in a moment lambasting these Pharisees for their rituals. And then he turns around and he praises a prostitute who doesn't know any better than to walk into a party that she wasn't invited to and pour out an expensive bottle of perfume over Jesus' feet as an act of worship and gratitude towards him. 
You know, I, I see Jesus, a God who doesn't really care about the outward appearance at all. It doesn't matter whether you're wearing royal robes or servant's garb. It doesn't really matter whether you have the corner office and you're in charge or whether you're sitting in a cubicle blending in or whether you're, you're struggling to find a job at all. What God is looking for is people who are desperate enough to climb sycamore trees, cut holes in ceilings, you know, push through crowds, yell at the top of their voices, jump out of boats to get to him, undignified, uncivilized, willing to do whatever it takes to worship God with all of our hearts. You know, as I look at David, that's, that's the lesson for me. That's what I want to be said about me, that that's someone who was willing to be undignified, who was willing to, to, to be uncivilized. And that's my prayer for this church. I pray that as people ask in the community, what's up with Seacoast? Tell me about those. Oh, those are the guys that are, they'll do anything, man. You know, they'll, they'll build houses for people. They'll, they'll serve the community in ways that makes no sense at all. They're, they're, they'll go for it and worship for their God. You know, the, say what you will about them, but man, they're, they're, they're a little crazy, a little, a little undignified in their worship with God. You know, what if we lived our lives in such a way that we really didn't care what people said or thought, but we were just willing to say yes, to dance before God, to, to go for it when he called us to. I believe that this community would experience the benefit of that. I believe that our, our neighbors, our families, and this community would be changed as a result. Would you guys pray with me as we close? God, we thank you. Uh, I thank you just for this incredible study of the life of David. God, and I thank you, Lord, that when you saw this man and you said that he was a man after your own heart, Lord, we get a picture of why that is, Lord, and it's this uncivilized, undignified, whatever it takes, worship of you. And God, as we get ready to enter into our response time, I just pray, Lord, that you would lead us into that place. Lord, that we wouldn't really care what others think or say, but we would just be willing to worship you with all of our might. Lord, that we would just be brought back to the joy of our salvation. Lord, the joy of knowing that you've saved us because of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, you've given us new life in you. You've given us new purpose in you. You've given us a mission and a calling to make a difference in this world. And Lord, in response to that, in response to the second chance that you've given us, the third chance, the fifth chance, the tenth chance, that we would just worship you with all of our heart and with all of our might. God, we love you and we thank you for what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.